0: Hey everyone, today is a celebration day over here at the Beautiful Writers Podcast, our first ever Best Of episode. I'm Linda Sievertson, your host, and it's not only my birthday today, August 31st, but we are sneaking up on the two-year birthday of this podcast. Since it's still summertime and I'm feeling reflective and especially grateful today to have the time and ability to even do this podcast when so many people are stuck in survival mode. I want today's episode to be special, really fun. It wasn't that many years ago that I was in my own kind of survival mode, and it takes time and patience and a lot of good folks to see you through to the other side. On that note, I want to send love to those in Houston still reeling from Hurricane Harvey. Brene Brown, who many of you follow on social media and who Danielle Laporte and I interviewed last year, lives in Houston and reminds us to donate to whatever organization we support that's helping people on the ground there and to remember them six months from now when depression can set in, adrenaline is depleted, and the world has moved on. I donated through Glenn and Doyle Melton and her Together Rising by texting TR4Texas number to the numbers 41444. They send you a prompt for your tax-deductible donation. Super easy. Again, That's TR4, Texas, to the numbers 41444. Okay, about today's show. I've been wanting to do a best-of episode for at least the 14 months since I took over as the sole host here and brought on different monthly co-hosts, which has been a blast. But guys, oh Lord, with over 22 hours of interviews with some of my all-time favorite writers, it was pointless trying to choose the quote-unquote best snippets and or interviews. Every episode is so dear to me, and I think they are to you too. You've downloaded and listened to these episodes now nearly 400,000 times, putting us in the top 5% of all podcasts of all categories, which I am immensely grateful for. After reviewing these shows, I think I'm understanding maybe why that. From the very start when Danielle and I interviewed Danny Shapiro and Martha Beck and Liz Gilbert all the way to our most recent shows with Glennon Doyle-Milton and Anne Lamott and Paul Williams and Rob Bell, these folks uplift and entertain so fully with their badassery language skills that you can't help but feel good listening to them. They're survivors, they're thrivers, they're proselytizers, and their religion is kindness. They have faced every imaginable hardship and more rejection than a family of rats in a restaurant. And yet they're still standing. They're still laughing, still giving, still writing. You may wonder how I chose these snippets. <laughs> they really chose me. I'd remember one, find it, pull it, and then think of another one. But it was nearly impossible. While the things you're about to hear on coaxing the muse and bouncing back from rejection and landing first book deals are some of my favorite stories ever. There were 50 more, 100 more that I didn't even have time to get to. So no favorites, just part one of more to come. I can't say when, but stand by. We'll get to your favorite guest or snippet eventually. And if not, they'll be in the book. Because of course you know I'm working on a beautiful writer's book, right? Too many people tell me they take pages and pages of notes during each episode, so the book mama can take a hint. More on that to come. As for timing let's go long. Why not? It's my birthday. With Danielle and me, you may recall that 45 minutes was the new hour. But with me, it's more like 75 minutes is the new 45. (laughs) So we'll see. That's all. I love you. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, wait. Some of you know that my sister, Carol Allen, is one of the most popular Vedic astrologers in the country. And in the Vedic tradition, you're supposed to give gifts on your birthday. With that spirit, I've created a free writer's gift pack over at bookmama.com, which I'll talk a bit more about at the close. For now, let's get this birthday party started. I think we should begin with the topic of sex, right, Danielle? Sleeper sex? Because that question always got us laughing. We'll hear from Elizabeth Gilbert, Ariana Huffington, and Brene Brown on that for old time's sake. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Sleep or sex?
1: (laughs) I guess I have to go with sleep because it came out of my mouth before. I I was like, whatever the thing is that comes after that is no.
2: I think you're allowed to say I'm on a book tour, so I'm choosing
1: sleep. Sleep. (laughs) Look, if I don't
2: get enough sleep, I'm
1: not going to want to have sex with you anyway. So it should be sleep first.
3: What about sleep or sex?
1: Well, sleep makes sex better and more likely. There is <laughs> much, more,
3: a, <laughs> much more likely, right? Yes, there is a study that shows that every hour of sleep increases the likelihood of sex by 14%. Don't ask if they got so specific, but they did.
4: Sleep or sex? Oh, there will not be one without the other.
0: <laughs> oh my God, what a great answer. Best answer Yes. Now that we've got sex out of the way, let's go to prayer. That seems like a good segue, right? Coaxing the muse. Whether it be formal and faith-filled or impromptu begging, candlelit, or by the light of the moon with knees in the grass, most writers do something to align themselves with sacred energy. I say most. Some writers, like Elizabeth Gilbert, whose name is eternally tied to the word pray in her book Eat, Pray, Love are actually too busy having fun writing to stop to pray about it. All right, prayer. Do you pray before you write? And if so, can you share with us what that looks like?
1: You know, I don't. And I wish I did. (laughs) I wish I prayed more. I don't have a prayer practice, to be very honest with you. I have a very sketchy meditation practice, (laughs) but it's nothing I would like teach or advise somebody to imitate because I think there are a lot of other people who engage at that level a lot better than I do. Not that it's a competition, but, you know, there are people who have real, really deep, really rich meditation and prayer practices. And sometimes I look at them with envy and then I think, well, why don't you do it? (laughs) And the thing is, I forget, you know, I forget. And it's very hard for me to pray. This is terrible, Never said this before, but we're speaking the truth here. It doesn't serve anybody not to. It's very hard for me to pray when I'm not desperate. Prayer Mm -hmm. to me is still tied up in some sort of idea of desperate pleading that I go to when I've reached the end of myself and I can't handle things, and I don't know what to do next, and I feel lost, that's when I'll turn to prayer. And I don't think it should really be that way. That might be something I need to look at and explore. I don't pray before I write. It's weird. I don't even do a joyful prayer, but I was going to say it's usually too caught up in joy and excitement for me to pause and do that. Yeah. yeah. I clean my house. (laughs) I clean the hell out of my house because I love to sit down in a clean space and write, and I also know that once I get going— it's not going to get clean for like another year.
0: <laughs> is that a kind of prayer? <laughs> the garage cleaning is mine. I had a medicine man for years that I lived next door to in New Mexico. And he used to say to me, because I used to come to him and say, I feel like I should be meditating. Everybody's meditating. And he said, but you write. And writing is a meditation. Do you know, I had a wonderful conversation with my friend, Rob Bell. Yeah.
1: Pastor Rob Bell wrote Love Wins and he's such a great guy. We were doing like an onstage conversation together and somebody said to him, I keep looking for a church that I can belong to, that I can be part of, that will make me feel the way that I want to feel. And I can't find it because every time I go to a new church, I find a new set of dogma and doctrine that I have a lot of trouble with. And mm-hmm. I feel like I should go to church, but I just can't find the church and Rob Bell, who's a minister, said, maybe the church that you're looking for isn't a church. Maybe the thing that you're trying to feel, like transcendence and wonder and excitement, isn't going to be found for you in a church. Maybe it's going to be found for you in exercise or in creativity or in service or in joyful expression in some other way or in creating a study group with somebody or building something and I love that idea that maybe your church isn't a church so maybe yeah. your prayer isn't literally prayer I mean I feel like the well I do not pray before I begin writing when I am writing I am my most authentic most actualized most in tune and most devout self so it could be that my prayer is that
0: On the other prayer hand, we've got Mary Carr, one of the world's most successful memoirists, whose Catholic faith doesn't preclude her from being irreverent, not even when it comes to talking to God. Following Mary, you'll hear War of Art and book and screenwriting legend Stephen Pressfield, who sounds all kinds of wonderful woo-woo, which was a nice surprise for me, knowing that he's one of the best military writers alive. And lastly, we'll hear from Jillian Lauren, best-selling novelist and memoirist, who I'm pretty sure had a posse of angels watching over her during her time as a harem girl in Brunei.
3: Mary, do you have a prayer that you say before you write?
5: Oh, yeah, I have a lot of them. I mean, I do a sort of centering prayer exercise before I write, which is, you know, 15 to 30 minutes of just following my breath. And I get on my knees a lot in the middle of the day and just say, you know, help me. It's an old Hemingway line, you know, help me say the next true thing. Or I hit my knees and I say a lot of swear words and shoot the finger at the light bulb and say, you know, why do you want me to do this if it's this damned hard? So I sort of figure even if I'm ranting and raving at God, at least we're having a conversation.
6: I got this years ago. From a, f- a friend of mine, like my, my first sort of mentor in the business. And uh, he used to say this prayer, and it's the opening prayer from the T.E. Lawrence translation of the Odyssey. And it's actually the words that uh, Homer used at the very start of the Odyssey. And it's his, Homer's, invocation of the muse where he kind of says, mm-hmm. you know, sing, goddess of the wrath of Achilles, or actually that's the, that, I'm wrong, that's the Iliad. But he talks about, help me to tell the story of Odysseus. So I do, I do say a prayer every morning. It's kind of like what you mm-hmm. did, Danielle, to start this show yeah. or this podcast, mm-hmm. where you kind of made it a sacred space
7: by, mm-hmm.
6: you know, it's sort of like entering a dojo of, uh, or, mm-hmm. right? And I think that, uh, I think that's great, and I believe in mm-hmm. it completely. Oh, I always remember? say that the muse is the only female in my life that I've always been faithful to and the only one who's always been faithful to me.
3: Jillian, do you pray when you work or before you work? I do pray. I pray before I work always. Always. Time. Every nice. time. Every time. Um, and I talk to God a lot.
8: <laughs> <laughs>
3: I have a pretty running thing with God in my daily life. It's very—it's not very formal, um, but it's there. It's very present, and I do pray. And I think that anything that can set apart the creative space from the laundry and the kids and all that stuff that is makes your mind so crowded—and just to create some more spaciousness. So I light a candle and I say a prayer and I try to. Breathe, become really conscious of my body, try to really put myself in the space that I'm in rather than, you know, what I'm making for dinner and, you know, what that guy said to me in that comment and all this
0: stuff. Do you turn off your social media and your phone and your email and everything when you work? Um, I
3: turn off my social media and I turn off my computer. I do leave my phone on because I have a young child. Yeah. So, you know, to me I'm not comfortable being totally beyond somebody being able to reach me. And like it's more stressful for me to be (laughs) totally unplugged. But I do make really strict rules for myself. Like I'll have my texting on vibrate. Sometimes I'll turn that off and even just like just check the phone every once in a while. But I do not I don't text back. I don't pick it up. I don't just like and then, because the phone's in my hand, just check my Facebook really quick, <laughs> you know? Right. Because once you start doing that, I think that there's, there's this myth that we can multitask, mm. and our brains actually don't multitask. So there's all that time that your brain spends shifting from one thing to another. So, like, I have a child. My child has special needs. There were times when I was constantly on eggshells waiting for a call from the school, So, you know, come pick your kid up. You bit somebody. And so I had to be reachable. So the challenge for me is being reachable and not indulging in the kind of procrastination that we use social media
0: for. I adored talking with Academy Award-winning composer and songwriter and bestselling author Paul Williams about his prayers because I've seen him bring through Grammy-winning tunes in the time it took him to eat a bowl of my lentil soup. Of course, no section on prayer would be complete without tuning into The Divine Spiritual Teacher and bestselling author Marian Williamson. And then we will close this section with one of my idols, Oprah book club pick and number one New York Times bestselling memoirist of Love Warrior, Glennon Doyle Melton. She's asking one of both of our idols, novelist and memoirist, Anne Lamott, about her prayers when she sat down with us to talk about her 17th book, Hallelujah Anyway.
9: The grandiosity is thinking that I can sit there and and squeeze it out of me. That's grandiosity. The grandiosity Hmm. is is I dip into what I'm really feeling, say something honest and show it to the world and they respond. And my reaction to the success is an ego-driven moment where I go, well, well, I can do that all the time and sit down there and get in my head and start writing brilliant shit that nobody's ever going to connect with because it's not real. So Hmm. the grandiosity is the post-success of just getting out of the way. Here's what I found out in early sobriety. I found out that what worked for me in recovery was the one thing that had been working for me in my writing, and I could now really, really focus on that and just do it. I'll give you the first example. And I think this is what you're talking about, writing the songs. Mm -hmm. The first job I got when I was in newly Silver was to write the words and music for The Muppet Christmas Carol. Perfect, perfect job for me. It's about (laughs) a man's spiritual awakening. I mean, I was screwed. I mean, no, I hadn't mm-hmm. been mean, no, I, and I, I had been generous and I had been okay. loving, and I was, you know I had a few little faults, like trying to screw everybody else's wife and stuff like that, but, you know, <laughs> but basically, I was not a really bad guy, you know. But the fact is that here I was to write these songs, you, know, for a Disney film with the Muppets. And it wasn't something that we'd actually thought about doing, but they wanted the first number to be about Scrooge. They wanted yes. to be Scrooge's "I am" song. And what you were going to see was you're going to see the doors open you see Michael Caine's feet as Scrooge. And he's walking through the mud and splashing the water and the snow. And as he goes by the little creatures, they seem to get colder as he passes. So I went out, I took my little tape recorder and a piece of paper and a pencil. And I had read the book, I would read Dickens' original, I would read the script. I knew what the song needed to be about. I went out and I sat out in the park. I sat down. And I basically said, Big Amigo, this, this needs to be, you know what this song needs to be about? You know, all these amazing forces up there somewhere in in and out, around me and within me. Let me know when you have an idea. And I picked up a launch block of mystery, a really bloody mystery, and started reading it. And about three pages in. I set it down, not thinking about what I was supposed to do. I set the book down and I went, okay. You see his feet, he's walking. Ba da bum, 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 bum. When a cold wind blows, it chills you, chills you to the bone. But there's nothing in nature that freezes your heart like years of being alone. I went, well, it's not bad, you guys.
6: <laughs> it paints you <laughs>
9: with indifference like a lady paints with rouge. And the worst of the worst, the most hated and cursed is the one that we call Scrooge. Oh, there goes Mr. Humbug. There goes Mr. Grimm. If they gave a prize for being mean, the winner would be him. And it poured out of me. I couldn't write <laughs> it down fast enough. Oh I had God. no conscious connection to the writing process uh-huh. beyond the fact that my unconscious, just as... You try to remember a name, and everybody listening can relate to this. I'm going to prove to everybody in your audience that they are creative and that they have the capacity to do things they haven't even begun to think about trying. Mm -hmm. You're trying to remember a name, folks. You love that movie. What was the name of the star in it? You can't think of his name. He's been your favorite for your entire goddamn life. Why can't I remember his name? All of a sudden, you start thinking about something else. You're doing the dishes. You're in the shower. You're laying in bed in the middle of the night, and boom, it pops to the surface. Who did that work? Yeah. Who went through all those filing cabinets up there looking for the name? And you went, oh, my God, Arthur Honeycutt or whatever the hell name. it. Right. That magical, mystical power. So when you sit down to do work, and this is my wrap-up to this time. There's a wonderful composer named Richard Bellis, who is a friend of mine. He's also on the ASCAP Board of Directors. And he says that many times we mistake procrastination for percolation. It's not procrastinating. Mm-hmm. You get a job to do. You avoid it. You avoid it. You avoid it. All of a sudden, you've got four hours and a half to turn it in. You sit down. It pours out of you. Why? What's been happening? It's been percolating. Those guys upstairs have been doing the work.
10: I dedicate
1: what I'm writing to God, which means to love, that it might be of service, that it might be of use. Particularly with this last book I wrote, I have really hoped that for people who are sad or in pain or going through something and of course we all have our sad times and our painful times but I hope that this book will reach into the heart of whoever could be served by it that's always my prayer you know I think we heal in life one aha at a time and I think that's every writer's hope is that there's going to be an aha in something that you wrote some page, some paragraph some sentence will make somebody go yes that's my hope Mm -hmm.
2: Do you still pray
11: simply? Are your prayers still help things well? What does praying look like for you now?
12: Well, I wake up every morning, and 30 years ago I used to wake up and go, Oh, God, it's so hopeless, I'm so sick. And now I wake up and I say to God, Hi. Mm. And then I offer myself to God mm. to use with me and to do with me as he or she chooses and I pray not to be such a big whiny baby Mm -hmm. I have a few people who are in really dire uh, medical emergencies and I lift them up for perfect healing whatever their destiny is going to turn out to be I know they'll have perfect healing and peace and then usually around that time, my grandson has crawled into bed with me and he starts shaking me because he doesn't know I'm praying. He thinks I'm sleeping and that I should get up and start discussing his plans for the day and what he would like for breakfast. So I have kind of life on life's terms prayers and I pray all day, every day. And I mostly pray help, thanks, wow, and that I pray to stop being such a whiny baby.
0: We could talk all day about the creative process, but I want to touch on several things right now. Let's start with bestselling author and Huffington Post and Thrive founder, Ariana Huffington. And then we'll go to my co-founder in this endeavor and co-author with me on Your Big Beautiful Book Plan, and most recently, author of her latest hit, White Hot Truth. Of course, I'm talking about Danielle Laporte, whose voice you've heard throughout already. In this section, both Ariana and Danielle talk about what they do to get the words onto the page and organized. The other voice you'll be hearing with Danielle and me is Danny Shapiro, who came back as guest host during her own tour for her latest memoir, Hourglass.
3: I actually write by dictating.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And mm-hmm. Which, I love it, which has dramatically improved my writing productivity because I used to be a painfully slow writer. And constantly second-guess myself. And then I realize that I can actually give a speech for an hour without notes. So why don't I use that ability to actually produce a first draft? And then I love editing.
2: I look for the creative spine. That's what Twilight Shark calls the creative spine. So I get everything out. And then I think, ah, oh, I know there's a sequence in here somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and it happens, like, on my dining room or living room floor. And post it notes. And I say, oh, well, first I need to talk about trying so hard. And then comes exhaustion. And then, you know, the few more steps. And then after betrayal, let's insert something here. And then there's forgiveness. And then I got to wrap all this up with devotion. Hmm. So, yeah, that's how I do it. And then a lot of the chapters got flushed out on their own, not knowing where they were going to fit in the rhythm of things. I just needed to like say everything I needed to say on that one particular topic. And sometimes I would go backwards. So it was like, there's that story I have, that workshop, the divorce, the ashram. And I'd figure out what the lesson was in it, but it just felt like a really hot, juicy story. And then sometimes it was the reverse like, we've got to talk about forgiveness on the spiritual path. And I've got a really strong opinion about what I would consider a more holistic and practical, practically divine approach to forgiveness. So I need a story to support that. Mm. So I'm back and forth.
0: Yeah, I mean,
13: there's a way in which it's music. Don't you think, Danielle, you described the sign, you know, Twilight Tharpe's sign. I always think of it as having a shape that emerges through the work. You can't impose it on what doesn't exist yet, right? It has to unfold, and then you begin to see what belongs to what and what the sign is or what the shape is
2: yeah and you can't take it too seriously i mean at some point you just have to say oh this is gonna work (laughs) i'm gonna get my point across it doesn't really matter for me the order doesn't really matter but yeah yeah you just have to trust this is good this is useful
0: Here we ask Seth Godin, author of 18 international bestsellers and one of the most successful bloggers in the world, what he looks for in an editor. His answer is followed by Stephen Pressfield and where he likes to start. Oh, and I should say that Seth Godin had a cold, a very bad cold, the day that we did our taping, but soldiered on anyway.
14: Different people need different kinds of editors, so we need to distinguish between line editing, copy editing, project editing. A copy editor is somebody who makes sure you don't use semicolons the wrong way. Hmm. and I have one of those. We've never met, but, and I don't use her for my blog, but for the books I've written recently. It's a pleasure. You send a Word file to someone, and it comes back with the little things fixed. A line editor is much harder to find. A line editor is somebody who can think the way you want to think, and say, let's rearrange these six sentences. If you can find somebody like that who you trust, you should work with them forever. A project editor is priceless. A project editor might deserve more of the project than you get. The project editor is the person who says to Jerry Lewis, don't make that movie about the clown. (laughs) And that one one sentence is worth, what, $10 million? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm always on the search for that. I've been lucky enough to have a couple of partners and semi-partners through the years that have been insightful enough and wise enough and kind enough to speak up about the projects. Mm. Um, But in general, you will be disappointed. It's really hard to do that for someone else. So therefore, you better get good at doing it for yourself.
3: People always ask me, Stephen, where they should start in their story, where they should start writing. And I always say, go where the juice is. But that can greatly confuse writers who have been trained to write chronologically. So I know that you prefer to get the hardest parts out of the way first, but once you have a one-page outline, is that right?
6: Yes. I'm a big believer, you know, I have this thing I know you know about called the foolscap method. Foolscap meaning yeah. a single sheet of yellow legal pad. And one of my great mentors, Norm Stahl, once taught me, he said, Steve, God made a single sheet of foolscap to be exactly the right length to hold the entire outline of a novel. And that was like a great breakthrough for me, that concept, because if you can put something down on one page, it eliminates all the preciousness and all the research and all the resistance, you know, all the avoidance that comes up. And it also Mm -hmm. makes you answer the question, how does this damn thing end?
10: (laughs) Right? So many of
6: us will start at the beginning and we don't know where the hell we're going, right? So doing it all on one page. So that's how I start. And then I usually work backwards from the end once I know what the end of the story is.
5: In Mm -hmm. other words,
6: not working backwards writing that way, but in terms of structuring it. You know, if you have Mm -hmm. the climax when the Terminator comes after... You know, uh, Sarah Connor, then you know you have to go backwards and lay in the beats that have to happen to lead up to that.
0: In the last two snippets of this creative section, Danielle and I wanted to know what was the best creative advice O magazine columnist and best-selling author Martha Beck had ever been given, and how in the heck is Seth Godin so prolific?
15: However you feel creating something and selling it, that's how the person receiving it is going to feel when they receive it. So if you're creating a business Mm -hmm. product and you're in love with it, you will not have to sell it hard because people will actually beat down the door to find you. That's been my experience. Like I never, Mm -hmm. ever marketed as a life coach. It just sort of (gasps) happened.
14: Okay. People do not like my answer because it's extremely simple. Here we go. (laughs) I don't go to any meetings, and I don't watch television. So I save seven to eight hours a day over (laughs) most people. In those seven or eight hours a day, I do a couple things. One, I write like I talk. If you write like you talk, you never have to deal with writer's block because you never have talker's block. And there's something enormously powerful about blogging every day. I think everyone should blog every day, even if you need to do it under another name. Just do it. Because if you know that another post is due tomorrow, another post will present itself. Mm. It just will. Number two is I don't use Twitter. I don't use Facebook. I'm not willing to get sucked into the maelstrom of social media just so somebody else can make a profit. Instead, I have made a decision about what I want to accomplish, and I picked the channels to do it in, and I have stuck with them even when they were hard because there's a dip and trying a lot of little things doesn't nearly pay off as much as sticking with just a few big things. So when you add all of those things up, I feel mostly unemployed most days because (laughs) my job is to notice things and to engage with people and to earn their trust and to use their attention wisely not in the business of publishing another book not in the business of booking another speech I'm in the business of teaching and whatever that leads to next seems to be okay with me and every once in a while I have to make a hard decision will I do that or won't I do that but the goal hasn't changed in 20 years which is how can I build a platform where I get the privilege of whispering to people who want to hear from me about stuff they're interested in
0: Over and over in these interviews, I hear about courage, about needing to be willing to put yourself out there and step into the spotlight despite your anxiety, your fear, your terror even. Here are some funny and raw and vulnerable examples, the first of which is from Jillian Lauren talking about her frequent envy of other writers. Gotta love this honesty. Then a hilarious admission from Glennon Doyle to Martha Beckamy about her initial paralyzing fear of public speaking and what that made her do. Then Brene Brown, who at one time had three books on the New York Times bestseller list at the same time. She tells us a stunning story about how she kept from losing all composure on Super Soul Sunday with Oprah. And last, we'll go back to Glennon and Martha talking about how writing a book is just so damn hard.
2: Okay, question left field. What are you envious of? Or is there anything that you are envious of?
8: Oh,
3: gosh, I'm envious all the time of everyone's everything. That is... (laughs) (laughs) That's the best answer of all time. I have no envy. I am just so content with who I am and what I... No, I, you know, I'm an artist. So, you know, I'm like how come she gets that and how come she's better at that and how come, you know, I'm better than she is, she's better than I am. She gets more, she gets less. What is, you know, if I were a man, and it's just, it's nonstop. And, you know, if I only had this, if I only had that, I'd be happy. Now, you know, that stuff is totally there. And I just try to really recognize it for what it is, which is, it's not a crime. It's just human. But do I let it define my sense of self-worth? Not on my good days, I don't. And I try to be very conscious of it. Like, when all that stuff is going on, all that envy and all that doubt and all that great stuff, I just try to preserve a little part of myself that is watching it and is able to say, hey, wow, look at you. You are being really envious right now. (laughs) And isn't that interesting? How curious. (laughs) You know? You know, what and then it becomes something that can be useful to me because I'm writing about people with human emotions, you know, and I'm writing about the real stuff that we all feel. And so if I was some enlightened monk who's, like, not having any of those emotions, then, I mean, maybe, I know monks do have those emotions or whatever, but just, you know, if I was in a place having transcended all of that, then then that would be an opportunity lost, you know, Mm -hmm. to really experience some of this stuff and then hopefully maybe express it creatively, you know, write about it in a character or write about it in myself, write about it in an essay and speak to everyone who has
0: emotions, like envy. Can we just stop for a second and talk about your TED Talk, which was so amazing? Was it scary? It was only like your third talk or something, right? Yeah. You
11: guys, my sister was like, oh, we're just going to go do this thing. It's just a little thing. No problem. (laughs) Because I have no clue. Because what is it the deal with when you become a writer, people think you should be a speaker. They're completely unrelated to each other. Like most people become a writer so that they can stay in their pajamas and connect with people without seeing them. So... This was just something my sister was like, let's just try it. Let's see if you can be a speaker. And you guys, the first maybe ten events I did, I used to make my sister sit in a chair behind me on stage. And I never introduced her or said what she was doing there. So it looked like we were doing some kind of panel, but the other person had no nothing to say. And I will still have people come up to me and say, I saw you, and it was the weirdest the thing I've ever seen. What, was she just your moral support, like your chair back there? Yes. I was like, if I'm going to do this, I'm sure as hell not doing this without you, and you're going up there with me. Oh, oh my
15: God. That's hilarious. So,
11: so the TED Talk, obviously, they didn't let us do that. I remember sit- telling my dad, okay, I'm going to go do a TED Talk, and he was so proud. And he said, so what are you going to call it? And I said, I'm going to call it Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in the Mental Hospital. And he
0: goes, damn it. God, are you ever going to do anything I can send to my friends? So our listeners love Oprah, and we know you love Oprah. I do. So take us back to the first time you're sitting there or standing there with her. Was it a little surreal?
4: Oh, yes. (laughs) Um, No, it wasn't like a little surreal. It was, you know what happened? The night before, I went out with the producers in Chicago to dinner at Ralph Lauren. I'll never forget. Oh, wow. Um, And I was coming out, and the producers walked back to wherever they were going, and Murdoch, my manager, and I were walking back to the hotel, and he's like, where are you, Brene? And I'm like, I kind of, I thought that was just a literal question. So I looked up and I was like, I think we're on Michigan and something. He's like, he's like, no, where are you? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, you were not even at dinner. Whoa. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm kind of floating above watching. And he's like, man, you do not want to miss this. This is going to be a big deal tomorrow. Like, get back in your body. Or what is it <laughs> going to take? And so, you know, it's something I had thought about for so long and I have such respect for what she's done and how she's done it. And I think it was a big moment. And so it was the first time I ever wrote a permission slip. And so I think part of my fear was that I needed to not lose my shit when I saw her and I needed to be, you know, I'm a researcher, I'm an academic. Yep. That's a really, that's a huge part of my life. And I love that part, but it can also be very stifling. And so in academics, we're trained that accessibility and joy are shaming. Like if your work is accessible and you take a lot of joy in it, that means you're not smart. And so my whole career has been kind of pushing against that. So I wrote myself my first permission slip on a sticky note. I just wrote, I give myself permission to be goofy, have fun, and be excited. And so I just stuck that in my jacket. And so if you watch that first Super Soul Sunday, I am just like grinning ear to ear (laughs) like a freaking crazy person.
2: It's beautiful, I loved it, and how was Oprah with your excitement like what's her dance with how how stoked
4: you are? You know, I think it was so pure that she was like she was it was really funny yes yeah, she, she we had a good time, we, we had together, and we had a very really deep connection right off the bat and, yeah. and I think there was a moment where she's like, okay, let's do, okay. we need another episode. So yep. let's just do two of these. And I was like, okay. Do you th- no, you know what I said? I said, do you think that's okay? Do you think they're going to be okay with that? <laughs> <laughs> she, I'll never forget Permission. the look she had on her face.
1: Oh my God. Go she through. was
4: like, do I think who is going to be okay with it? Like in this very serious tone. And I was like, oh shit you. Yes. Okay. And then she just started laughing. I said, I don't have anything else to wear. And so she's like, you could just borrow something from me. so I borrowed one of her shirts and then, um, but then I'll tell you what happened. She said, Dr. my Angelou is here in the green room. I'm going to film her after this. And I was oh, like, Lord. I just, the blood ran out of my <laughs> face. I'm a huge, I mean, I've taught her before. And so she's like, would you like to meet her? And at first I was like, Oh, I don't know. I don't want to be, you know, cause I get really like, I don't want to impose. And I was like, um, and she's like, I think you want to meet her. And I was like, I totally want to meet her. Is it okay? And she's like, yeah. So I walked in. I was like, hi, Dr. Angela, nice to meet you. And she had watched my whole show because there's you know, TVs in the green room. And she said, oh, baby, you need to keep telling the truth. You need to keep doing this work. And so I was holding her hand and I said, I'll never get through this story without crying. But I said, you know, at the end of my classes, I always, I turn off the lights and I play you reciting, I shall not be moved. And she grabbed my other hand, and she sang, Like a tree planted by the river, I shall not be moved. Oh, my God. I've goosebumps on my kneecaps right now. I know. I just just fell out. Like, yeah, what do you do? You fall out. That's a transmission. It's beautiful. Yeah, it was incredible. And I thought, had I not written that permission slip to be myself, we probably wouldn't have had that connection. I probably would not have had the courage to go meet her. So yeah, so the permission to be uncool and excited and goofy and celebrate, frick, it's so important.
15: It's really true that it is the one highly skill demanding process that people are expected to do without any instruction whatsoever oh, on yeah. how you actually construct a book. It's so weird. So I was going to ask you for other people who are just starting out and they're in the, at the beginning of that process. And I remember how mind bogglingly hard it still is for me but the first time it was and, and nobody cared and i didn't know anyone in publishing and and i was taking time away from my kids and my other work and just justifying that was like a whole day's work for me <laughs> right <laughs> it's like oh. so what advice would you give to the people out there who are in that place, like Zay Frank calls it, that horrible place between zero and one, where you've never finished oh one, and you're starting, and you're working, and it's so hard and thankless and endless.
11: Terrible.
15: What would you Emily. say to them?
11: Yeah, I mean, so I think the way I got through the writing and the, is the same way I get through everything, which is how I got sober, which is just, like, teeny goals. If I will lose my mind, I can't even think of, like, a week ahead of time. I really can't, you guys. Like, my anti-anxiety strategy is, like, what am I going to feel like success is today? You know? And so, for me, it was just, I will sit in this, I was in a closet then. I did all of my work in a closet, because that's, like, a really good idea for someone with depression, is to spend 10 hours a day in a room with no windows.
0: I did the same thing on my first book. You and I Have freaky weird things. Really? I didn't have
11: any other rooms. So it was just this is where I'm gonna be. And so I just promised myself I was gonna sit I just was gonna open that file and I don't know what it was, two hours? I don't know, something like that. It wasn't like eight hours. I, I never could have done that. But it was maybe two hours a day. And you guys, I have to be really I'm like a precious snowflake with myself. I'm so sweet to myself about that kind of stuff. So I used to promise myself if I don't get anything done, if I get like no sentences done, that's okay. But I can't move my butt out of the chair for two hours and I can't go on Facebook, you know? So what happens, like, it's just like life. It's just like, if you keep just doing that next right thing every day, if you keep showing up for two hours each day, you end up with a book. And if you keep doing the next right thing in your life, you end up with a life. Like you just... You just have to do it one freaking day at a time. Like you can't write a book. Nobody can write a book. Okay. No. (laughs) No. 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 No one can write a book. No one's ever written a book. Okay. Everyone has just sat down for two hours a day or whatever. So many days in a row and it's just turned into something. And then I remember being so grateful. This quote, I know there's like so many more inspirational quotes, but this is the one that helped me. I had this little quote from Cheryl Strayed next to my computer. And it said, the way it feels to write a book is that you cannot write a book. And that helped me so much because that's how I felt the whole time is I was like the little engine that could, but the exact opposite every day. I was like, I, this can't be done.
0: Haters, disbelievers, make fun of us We all deal with them and they suck. TV and radio personality and bestselling author Lisa Gibbons shares a story about the flack she received leaving Network News to join Entertainment Tonight in its inception when it was considered fluff and would kill her career. Then Guru Singh, a man LA Magazine once called the best guru in LA, how LA is that, gives a spiritual take on how he deals with negative reviews and his response is so healthy, you're going to want to take notes. You were at the top of your class in journalism school and then started out in news but very quickly pivoted and helped create this new genre, which we now know it's normal now to have fun, casual people and celebrity centered shows. But do you look back now and kind of marvel at how you were just being authentic and following your sort of intuition when people, including the bosses that you were quitting on, were telling you that you were going to ruin your career?
10: Yeah, that's when you really do have to love your haters. You know, you just do. But yeah, I'm sure that, you know, you all have, I'm sure everyone listening has gotten that kind of input from people who don't don't believe in what you're doing, um, don't see the vision. And maybe you haven't taught them how to receive you because you haven't yet stepped into your authenticity. But I was just beginning to realize that I wanted to tell stories. I really didn't care, Linda, if the stories were, you know, wildlife preserves or riding with an 18-wheeler on, you know, a three-day run or... You know, stomping grapes. I didn't care. Hand I just lighting. wanted. To, yeah, I just wanted to be that conduit, But I, the news director did say you are leaving behind what could be a really great news career, and no one's going to take you seriously, and you're not going to get hired if this show doesn't work, this fluff thing that you're going to do. <laughs> but you think back to 1979, 1980, that was when MTV started, E.T. started that year, and the pop culture changed. So it was my intuition and it was being willing to take, you know, they always say that genius requires bold action. Well, things that are not quite genius require our bold action too. We just have (laughs) have to commit. I don't know if there's any big strategy. It was like back to the faith that I had in myself because I would get tripped up along the way, but I always came back to, I believe in me because my parents told me to believe in me because they believed in me. What a great thing that we can give our kids and other people.
7: Well I'll say in response just like what we were talking about rain if you go out in the rain and you're not in your bathing suit or in something or in something that is going to be okay with water then you had better shield yourself and therefore the way in which you shield yourself is to deflect those comments that are going to take you down. Yeah. And that means that you have to have strong self-talk because anybody can say anything. And people will read your work as a writer through their eyes, through their ears, through their inner voice. Sure. And they will be interpreting it through their experiences. And therefore, they will be responding and commenting and critiquing, not through the gospel of God, but through the reality that they've experienced. And therefore, you have to be able to have a shield that allows you to experience their comments, experience their critiques without being stabbed to death by them if they're negative. Yeah, And also without being, you know, uplifted by them to the point where it's unrealistic if they're positive. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
7: So that's what the Buddha called the middle path, which is the path in which there are no extremes. Just, I'm, uh, you know, like people in commenting about, you know, my book Buried Treasures, you know, like out of all of the Amazon comments, you know, there was like a minuscule number of negatives. Yeah. And those negatives I wanted to read, I wanted to know what, why people didn't like it. And I thought to myself, how curious they thought this, how curious they felt that, because I was listening to it through my neutral mind, which is the curious mind, it's the mind of a child. And, I wasn't taking them on as burdens. I was taking them on as perspectives. And I thought, oh, that's fun to know that somebody can look at my work, which you know took forever to write and (laughs) and (laughs) just 20 years, guru. What's the big deal? And somebody actually read the book (laughs) while feeling this way about the book. And I wanted to respond to the people that had you know, negative critiques about my book is going, wow, I so admire the fact that you read it from beginning to end and felt this way, you know? yeah, That's not something I could do. If I felt this way about a book, I'd close it within 10 pages. <laughs> exactly. And so I admire your courage and your strength and your keep up because you kept on going, hoping that there was going to be something else that was going to shift your view. And so that's how I look at negative critique.
0: Staying on this topic of dealing with darkness or just plain old snooty-nosed brats, I want to highlight my talk with Martha Beck. When Martha was sharing the backlash she'd experienced releasing a memoir centered around Mormonism, right as Glennon Doyle's Love Warrior was about to come out and already ruffling some fundamentalist Christian feathers. Sheesh! Then we'll go back to Lisa for a funny story about outsmarting the mean girls at her son's PTA.
15: I got so much hate mail after leaving the stage. I mean, really, really violent hate mail. It made oh. everything else beforehand look like completely insignificant compared to what. I mean, you just don't jump on a mainstream religion and expect to get out on
11: stage. Oh, great. Thanks, Martha. Great. Right. Damn it.
0: Uh, you know, oh, you're, you're oh no, yours is not <laughs> yours is very tame on the religion compared to yeah. leaving the yeah. saints.
15: <laughs> but I won't lie, it was really scary and really devastating. And then I started to get the letters that said me too,
0: mm-hmm. and the
15: emails that said me too. And I stopped counting at 2,000. Wow, and wow. oh, quick story I went to Utah to go skiing, and I was like, Can I wear ski goggles and a mask in the airport because <laughs> I don't want to be recognized in this state? Get off the plane. And I'll run into Starbucks because Mormons aren't supposed to drink coffee. So yeah. I'll just <laughs> So I was in there and I was like, "Oh good, I don't think any Mormons saw me." And I got my coffee, and the barista mixed it up, and she handed it to me, and then she grabbed my hand with her other hand, and she said, "Thank you for writing that book." Oh, and I was like, oh. "That is it. That's enough. That's all I needed. I will take all the shit for. The- Excuse me. I will take all that bad stuff. For <laughs> just one." Woman making coffee at Starbucks, oh. she is worth it.
10: Here's what I know for sure I did my absolute best every day. Yes. So did you. You know, I showed up every day. I showed up doing my best for my kids, uh, for my work, to honor my commitments, all of that stuff. But it is easy to hide behind that constant tailspin of over busy. Mm. And just like some of you and people in my family too have, when pressure's on and when you're hurt, you hide in all kinds of things. You know, we sleep too much, and we eat too much, and we don't eat enough, and we spend too much money, and we there's gambling or there's you know depression is wherever the places we go to hide so we don't have to feel hurt. Um, it just played into me creating more busyness, and because I'm so fed by my work and I love it so much, and I have loved it so much, it did create a blind spot for me of not being able to or not wanting to see work wasn't the enemy. It was a lack of boundaries around work, which I have gotten much better about learning. But I think a lot of women, that movie, The Intern um, with Anne Hathaway really struck me. I I had a scene just like her where she's, you know, she's creating her dream. She's running this internet business. She's got her husband, who's the lead parent, lean in at home, (laughs) right? And he's there doing all that, but feeling a little resentful, even though he's not really saying it, trying to be supportive. And, You know, she's taking the double whammy hit because you have to be, you know, really great businesswoman. You have to be great mom, great wife, all of it. And the working mom community isn't always as supportive. So when my kids were in school and we were having a bake sale, I said to the moms at the meeting, oh, what can I bring? And they would, oh, Lisa, don't worry. We know you're busy. Don't worry. You don't have to bring anything. And uh, besides, yes, slap, stab. Besides, we don't allow the pink bakery boxes, all homemade. And <laughs> yeah. I let that sit for a second. And I said, oh, that's okay. I make a really, really great peanut butter cookie. And I'll bring those. So I got in my car and I thought, you know what? I'm not going to let them diminish what I have to offer because it looks different than what they have to offer. And I'm certainly not going to judge what they're offering because they've chosen another path. My God, this is what we fought so hard for. We each got to choose how we want to be. But I did proceed to go to the bakery. Get the cookies, put them in Ziplocs, write little handwritten notes, you know, Nate's Mommy's homemade cookies. I took the Nobody got hurt.
0: What about when the hater is you, to yourself? Mary Carr has a wild story about this that I still have trouble wrapping my mind around even after hearing it multiple times. It is just straight up painful to learn about what she did to years' worth of pages.
5: I threw away 1,200 finished pages. I mean, I threw away the equivalent of four finished books before I turned in the final manuscript of that book. So it was very agonizing for me. But I don't know. I mean, what can I say? At one point, I considered selling my apartment and giving all the money back. I mean, I, I despaired of ever finishing it. But none of my books has been particularly easy to write.
3: Yeah. Well, Mary, did Liz, you actually nuke it, destroy it, tear up the files, or did you just like just tuck them aside and they're in a vault somewhere?
5: Oh no, I threw them capital A away. They went. To okay, Liz but that's
3: crazy, ass Mary. Who does that?
5: Well, I knew how crummy they were, or else <laughs> I would have saved them.
3: They were terrible. They were bad. Trust
5: me. I mean, somebody says, how do you know? I'm like, I know. I know for a living. I've been teaching for 30 years. I know what bad writing looks like. And all of this generated, everybody generates uh, really tedious work. I mean, it's just how it is. Just part of the process.
0: Most of us just aren't honest enough with ourselves to say that it's crap and throw it away. We tuck it away and then try to mine it later for tasty tidbits.
5: Well, I had a wonderful moment. I mean, when I was at my nadir, when I had finally thrown away, it was my third sort of pass, and I had thrown away, you know, my last hunk of it, big hunk of it, <laughs> several hundred pages, and I just sat at home and wept for like five days. I walked around in my underpants, and I didn't see anybody but the guy who delivered curry, and just wept and watched Oprah, and I just didn't know what to do. And I finally called Don DeLillo, whom I'm lucky enough to know, and I said, And I was sobby. I was weepy. I was like, you know, snubbing and wiping my nose on the back of my hand. And he said, what's the matter with you? I said, I've written a really bad book. It's terrible. You can't believe how bad it is. And he said kind of the perfect thing. He said, well, who doesn't? And I thought, this is arguably, you know, the greatest (laughs) English language novelist alive. And he's saying, well, of course, we all write bad books. And it was just, I was able to exhale for the first time in seven years.
0: I couldn't wait to put Danny Shapiro and Terry McMillan together because they've published five and eight novels respectively. The part of our conversation where we talked about how they each broke into the book biz has brought me perhaps more thank yous and fan letters than any other topic so far. And I think it's because the stories are so unusual and auspicious and give new writers great hope.
13: My first book, and it's a pretty unusual story, And, you know, it just doesn't happen this way very often. But I was in graduate school. I was at Sarah Lawrence getting my MFA. And when I started my MFA, I was 25 years old. And I felt like I had burned every bridge. I had made so many mistakes. I had been such a mess. I had, you know, dropped out of college. I had taken up with, like, just a married sociopath, you know, my father had just died in a car accident. My mother had been injured in the car accident very badly. And meanwhile, I hadn't even graduated from high school because I left high school a year early to go to college. So my last degree was from like sixth grade, the yeshiva in sixth grade. I so love this. I had been such a fuck up. And I'm saying all that as backstory because I had so much to prove to myself, to the world, to my dead father, to, you know, my mother, to anyone who would listen. And I was determined when I started that graduate degree, that I was going to finish and sell my first novel before I graduated, which is a completely unreasonable goal. And I did. And what happened was that one of my teachers, a mentor named Jerry Badanis, his wife was an editor at Crown, one of good, big, good publishing house. And he loved the book and he gave it to her and she loved it. And she said to me, you should get an agent. And so... This is how I got an agent. A friend of mine saw a photograph in a magazine of two very powerful agents in New York who were the co-heads of one of the biggest agencies. And my friend looked at the picture and she said, this woman looks like she's been in psychoanalysis. She will understand your work. (laughs) It wasn't Binky, was it? It was Binky's partner, Esther (laughs) Neuber. Oh, my Uh, God. Neither one of whom I would bet... (laughs) Good has ever graced the door of a psychoanalyst, but anyway,
0: was Esther at ICM then?
13: Yeah, they were both at ICM, and I, based on my friend's astute publishing advice, I picked up the phone and I called Esther Newberg. You did not. Did I did everything wrong? I called Esther Newberg, her assistant. you know, I don't know what I said to the assistant, but the assistant actually put Esther Newberg on the phone.
0: Oh. Okay, just – wait, we need to stop <gasps> for a sec. We need to just stop for a sec and just tell the listener in case they don't know that Esther Newberg is one of the legends of the industry. This is like calling Steven Spielberg. Okay, go ahead.
13: Yeah, no, I mean, I just – I <laughs> really had no idea. So I – Esther – like, What up, Esther?
0: Esther what
13: up? I just <laughs> on the phone and she said, what's it about? And I stuttered out something about what my novel was about. And she said, I'll take a look at it. No, <laughs> I was living on 72nd street on the Upper West side. ICM is on 57th street. Oh. I walked my manuscript down to 57th <laughs> so street. Off. And I took the elevator up to whatever floor ICM was on. I hand delivered this box, you know, of a manuscript with like a cover note. And I went home <laughs> yeah. and the next day my phone rang and it was Esther okay. Newberg. Saying, "Can you come in, you know, tomorrow at three o'clock?" Oh, and, Lord! I and love I, told, this. I told my friend who had recommended her based on her photograph in the magazine, and I said. <laughs> Do you think she's having me come in because she wants to help me do a course correction and I really shouldn't be a writer and she really just wants to let me know how bad this book is? I mean, I was, and and my friend's like, no, honey, I don't think that's what's happening. And so I went in and I had a meeting with her and it was very intimidating and very scary. By the way, I should say she is no longer my agent. She hasn't been my agent for the last 20 years. Yeah. She was my agent for the first 10 years of my career. But she said, I think I can sell your book. And she did uh, within, you know, days. And so I went from, and I think this is really important for listeners who are writers starting out. I went from feeling like a totally washed up, you know, had ruined my life, you know, completely like messed up kid who did not have any kind of bright future ahead of me to in a very short period of time being described, because my first novel came out when I was 27, being described as precocious, and and with all of these achievements, and then I suddenly had a graduate degree, and I started teaching, and it was like such a short period of time from A to Z. That
0: is so cool. Terry, Terry, tell us about your first deal. I I started out, because
16: I love short stories, and I started reading a lot of short stories. I always read novels, but I love short stories. And you know, I had a few published, but then I started writing this novel. I joined the Harlem Writers Guild, accepted into the Harlem Writers Guild at the time. And I had this short story called Mama Take Another Step. And so I had to read the story in front of some of these writers, some of whom had already been published, right? And I went, I remember I had two shots of tequila first. (laughs) Because I was nervous. i had never read in front of anyone. And as soon as I read it, you know, the woman would turn out to be my best friend, the same woman who best friend who died, who is the one I ended up going to Jamaica to get over and the grief. She raised her hand and she said, honey, that is not a short story. That is the beginning of a novel. So you might as well finish it. And then she looked around There were 14 people in that room. And I'll never forget it. And some of them, they said, she's right. And I said, you know what? I don't know how to write a novel. They said, you'll learn. Because this story is not finished. And long and short of it is I ended up seeing somewhere there was a fellowship. I ended up going to get applying to Yaddle. Someone told me about one of these places. And I was pregnant. My baby, my son, was now 32, moved the first time I was at Yaddo, And I finished this book. I forgot. And then I applied for this fellowship through Houghton Mifflin. And I submitted. Oh, I ended up also. Someone told me about a fellowship at Columbia University where you got this graduate workshop and fiction writing. And so I sent mama, which is, I shortened the title to, to there and I got accepted. It was called the double day something fellowship and you got this graduate workshop at Columbia. And so then I hear about the other fellowship through Houghton Mifflin and they would give you $7,500. And I was thinking, Lord, could I use 7,500 bucks? And so I sent them my stories, a few stories, and I didn't send them any of the novel because it was tacky. And I said, you know, I told them I'd won this fellowship through Columbia, blah, 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 blah. And they called me up and said, we're excited about your stories. We love your voice. At the time, I didn't know what the hell they were talking about, but we would really love to read some of your novel. And I said, Oh, you can't read the novel. It's not readable. They said, Why don't you let us be the judge of that? And I said, What? And they said, Can you Federal Express it to us? And I said, I cannot afford Federal Express. I will never forget it. And the long and short of it is, they paid for Federal Express, and that's how I got published.
0: Mm-hmm. What a great story. Those are both such good stories. And it just goes to show you, you know, there's rules of the game, quote unquote rules, and it can happen all sorts of different ways, right? There's as many different ways of magic to intervene as there are people. There's no one path. There really just isn't. Hearing Terry McMillan's stories again has made me want to watch Stella Got Her Groove Back and Waiting to Exhale two of her hit books that became hit films all over again, which got me thinking about another mega hit book that went from print to screen, Eat, Pray, Love, which reminded me of what Elizabeth Gilbert had to say on our show about the craziness of dealing with Hollywood. This conversation cracked me up.
1: The best professional advice I ever got, (laughs) (laughs) I've sold a bunch of stuff to Hollywood for movies, one of which became Eat, Pray, Love, one became Coyote Ugly, Mm. a bunch of magazine things that I wrote for GQ and Spin Magazine back in the day sold, although they didn't get made. I have a now PBS, BBC's allegedly made a version of this several things. The best advice I ever got was from somebody in Hollywood who just took me aside and just said, Let me just give you the true believing on this, okay? Hollywood is a horrible place filled with horrible human beings. Don't work with them. There's only one reason to have any interaction with them whatsoever, and that is because they have money that they can give you. So if you're lucky enough to be in a situation where you can work with them, just take the money and walk away and don't get involved in the
0: project. Oh, my God. As somebody who's been a producer on two different movies that both didn't get made, thank God, because I didn't want to enter into the cesspool, the best advice I ever heard about Hollywood was if you have to deal with them, just realize you're back in high school. Only the high school is really small and everybody in it is the most popular and the best looking from around the world. And they all move to the same high school and you're all competing. Oh God. I was like, okay, uh, never mind. Well, the weird thing is once I was told that. Like,
1: oh, then I could enjoy it. Right, exactly. Right? Then I could enjoy it. And then I was like, oh, there actually are some good people here. But anyway, I just love the line, Hollywood is a horrible place filled with horrible human beings. Don't work with them. Just cash the check and go back home. Um, and it, actually, I do think that the proper place for a writer who has sold her book or property to movies or TV is not to be around. It's none of your business after that point. Really, just let it go. Let them do their thing. It's not yours anymore. <laughs> go home and write another one.
0: You know what else cracks me up? Doing a deep dive into swear words and when to use them. I know we've snuck in a few naughty words so far today, and I'm sorry about the late safety advisory on that, but you're still here. So if you've got kids within earshot and don't want them to get an even better education in profanity, you're going to want to hit pause because friend, this section is basically a love letter to cussing. This is Glennon Doyle and Anne Lamott and me getting trashy. Okay. So I'm going to totally turn this conversation on its ass. Not that I don't love prayer. I'm actually a minister and have married four couples, only two of which, only two of which have gotten divorced. But I want to talk about swear words for a second. So anybody listening, turn your speakers down if you've got kids within earshot or press pause because I'd really like to talk about fucks. So Anne. Glennon and I were laughing the other day about how many fucks we put into our original manuscripts. Gee, how many did you send to your editor, the amazing Whitney Frick, in Love Warrior initially? Well, to be fair,
11: I wrote this at a time when I was, as Anne would say, ever so slightly belligerent and angry. So I hadn't really gotten to the peaceful wisdom part of the book. But I don't know. I sent it to her and I said, look, there's, I don't know, 100,000 words here or something. I don't know bad numbers." And she said, yeah, but Glennon, 75,000
0: of them are fuck. So this is a very, very short book. So when I read my, I had my 200,000 words. So double your behemoth was my original behemoth of my memoir. My Midlife Mass is what it's called. So before I went into Radical Cuts, which I'm still finishing, I did a word search of the word fuck. It only showed up 220 times. No big deal. Curious, I did a search of, some of my favorite authors, Liz Gilbert. And although she had other swear words, of course, in Eat, Pray, Love, but she only used the word fuck in EPL seven times. And they were super creative, which made me super jealous. Things like, you'll remember these, Operation Self-Esteem Day Fucking One, or She Thinks I Changed My Name to Motherfucker. She's fucking with you, groceries. So I wasn't sure that my fucks were so poetic, which was really discouraging. I looked up Cheryl Strayed's Wild. Thankfully, Cheryl has also been super creative with her swear words, but she had more F-words. She had 45 of them, but they were so, so creative. She had this one where she was talking about this recurring prayer that she had, and it was fuck them, fuck them, fuck them. And those were to the doctors who were telling her mother that she had cancer. And then she had this obvious, wonderful choice, right? Which was, I've got to get these fucking boots off my feet. And then, Mm. Anne, you're so famous for your K-Fucked, right? The K-F-K-D, K-Fucked negative radio station in the head. And then we've got Glennon has the brilliant F-word usage in Love Warrior, where you say, Glennon, any woman who doesn't give a fuck is simply abandoning her soul to adhere to the rules. No woman on earth doesn't give a fuck. No woman is that cool. So you've got that. So then, but Anne, I think out of all of my studies, I think you have the all-time winner of fuck. So I'm just going to read it. This is when your son, Sam, was three and had just intentionally locked himself out of the house with your keys. And he said, shit. And when he said, shit, you said, honey, what'd you just say? And he said, I said, shit. And you were like, but honey, that's a naughty word. Both of us have absolutely got to stop using it. Okay. He hung his head for a moment, nodded and said, okay, mom. Then he leaned forward and said confidentially, but I'll tell you why I said shit. I said, okay. And he said, because of the fucking keys.
1: <laughs> <Best>.
0: <laughs> you best. win. You win the all-time best fuck word. Oh, thank you.
11: <laughs> I mean, I think sometimes that writing is just about always using the right word, right? And sometimes it's just the right word. And you <laughs> yeah. try to change it, and it just sounds weak because whatever you change it to is not the right word.
12: Right. Yeah. yeah, I always tell my writing students to write what they love to come upon and I happen to love confessional writing and I love when people when women are just outrageously honest and bold and if they swear I probably love it even more because my friends and I do and it just makes us laugh so I don't swear nearly as much as I used to on paper yeah (laughs) yeah but I certainly don't object to it. And it often is just the funniest, funniest, funniest way to say something. And then you really have to go with it.
11: Yeah. And I think there's something. I mean, I think I've ta- I don't know who I was talking to about this recently. Maybe it was Liz. I don't know. But there's something about reading a woman who is speaking honestly, mm-hmm. who throws those words in when they're right, that mm-hmm. makes me like her more because I feel like she's free. Like she didn't try to follow the rules and be a lady. Like she just... There's something that feels like resistance to to the whole being a lady idea. Yeah. That makes it resonate right away when somebody when a woman especially just uses the right damn word.
12: Yeah. And also it's so wonderful when the very, very last person you would expect to swear like an elderly Christian science woman or something, uses it casually in conversation. It just is, it's like getting spritzed with a plant mystery, you know, you just laugh out loud and with kind of delight.
0: Oprah Winfrey, Sheryl Sandberg, Brene Brown, Danny Shapiro, they all share the same super agent, Jennifer Rudolph Walsh, who heads up the worldwide literary department of William Morris Endeavor. This snippet between Jennifer and Danny shows the humanity and love and relationship possible between people in this industry that so many find intimidating. Many listeners have told me that their closeness here has had a big impact on them. It did for me too. I once walked away from a very powerful agent who I was with for years, who I still respect dearly and got me great money, but whom I never felt close enough to post our photo on Facebook. At the end of the day, we writers want to work with people who believe in us and our stories and ideally who grow with us in life and relationship. Following Jennifer, we'll hear again from Stephen Pressfield for a few more insights on believing in, connecting with, and courting the muse. Ah, deep breath.
5: I want to constantly be open to a kind of reinvention, not a purposeful conscious, like now it's time to reinvent myself, but the world works on us and we continue to adapt and change. And so
8: there are some writers who repeat themselves
5: and there's some agents who think, oh, this is my writer who does history. This is my writer who does journalism. Yeah. And there's so much that gets lost in translation when that happens. So many things that are just out of view,
8: I think completely agree. I mean I'm reminded of what Cheryl Sandberg said which is that if she had a close look at what she wanted her career to look like or what she wanted her life to look like when she was working at the World Bank she would have missed the rocket ship because there was no internet. So she would have missed <laughs> Google, she would have missed Facebook. Oh you know, if God. she had been holding on to the end result picture too tightly. And so yeah. so I love that and I think about that a lot. And something that Danny and I have just recently talked about actually we did a conversation last week at a writer's conference that Danny was speaking at. And one of the things I said, and not even in response to a question, but something that I wanted to say to Danny, my beloved, I wanted to say that it's mutual and that Mm. I think that people feel that a relationship between the agent and the writer is very much the agent gives and the writer is served by that relationship and the agent is paid for that relationship. And Mm. all those things are true. But in addition to that, in the relationships that are most nurturing and thriving, It's really a two-way street. And so in all the ways that Danny has changed during the 20-some-odd years that we've been in relationship, I've changed as much too. And we're going to get to the Together Tour, which is the thing that made you reach out in the first place. But that's a very big deal to say, oh, I'm an agent and I'm also producing and curating a tour. And I am an agent, I'm curating a tour and seeing that tour. So that doesn't happen overnight. It happens when people like Danny are holding my hand, reflecting truths back to me, bearing witness to my life over decades, dancing at my children's bar and bat mitzvahs, and and really not only just holding my hand, but reflecting truths back to me and seeing me in a certain way and holding up that possibility to me. But that is the great glory of a creative, spiritual, loving relationship like the one that Danny and I are so blessed to have.
6: I think that a writer or any artist serves the muse. Mm. And that's why you can't command the muse, but you can only invoke her. And mm. I sort of feel mm. to me, you know what kite surfing is? Where sure. you have sort of mm-hmm. like a parasail above you and you mm-hmm. surf along the water. With lines going up to this parachute above you. I feel like we as the writers, we're on the surfboard, down on the surface mm-hmm. of the water. But there are lines extending above us and the power is coming from that. That's where, you know, is when the wind hits that sail, hits that kite, it pulls us. So I believe, let's go back to what you guys were just talking about, about social media. If you look at it from the inside out of the writer's career, or a singer's career, or an actor's career, or a, you know, a songwriter's career, you're going to have a body of work. You know, one album is going to follow another, follow another, follow another, and I think that those are muse-driven projects, and when you, yeah. when you finish mm-hmm. one, for me, I sort of ask partly what do I want to do next, but also what do you, the muse, want me to do next, and I think that we're, I believe we have a destiny. I think we're born with a destiny and there are sort of our works that we were put on this earth to write or to produce or to create. Mm-hmm. So that's my attitude. And I think that if the muse is flying overhead looking down and sees somebody with that attitude, she's very happy. Cause that's what, <laughs> that's what she wants. Right? That's awesome. You know, is this person a true servant of mine? And the question, this is the muse talking. And I think, the other way you kind of court the muse is by being willing to do whatever it takes to do your work, you know, not be distracted by other stuff, keep going, all that stuff, all that mental toughness stuff that yeah. makes you yeah. a good soldier for the muse. And Love I think it. that you can't fake it and you have to believe it, you know, and for me, I went to early in my career, I went through a really rough time where I think I sort of came out of it by saying to the muse, okay, all right, I'll follow you. Tell me what to do and (laughs) I'll do it. And I think that was a, uh, it really sustains you.
0: There are so many wisdoms I'm excited to share with you in part two of this Best Of event. Coming up will be Gretchen Rubin, Rob Bell, Elizabeth Lesser, Kyle Gray, Sarah Manguso, Robert McKee, Uncle Chuck Saylor, Agent Laura York, and more. I can't tell you how tempting it was to make this a three-hour show, but rather than smoosh everyone together, I wanted you to have real breathing time with each interviewee. I'm hoping the format leaves you wanting more. Of course, you can find all of these interviews in their entirety at beautifulwriterspodcast.com. For now, Let's close by going global, by taking the 30,000-foot view. To leave us with a kind of spiritual vision for moving forward with a few parting words from Anne Lamott and author, yogi, and spiritual leader Guru Singh, whose comments brought me great comfort at the time of this interview and in an earlier one I referenced, back when I interviewed Guru for my first book, Lives Charmed. Both Anne and Guru remind us with their strength of faith and hard-won inner peace that despite how devastating world events are, well-being is in greater abundance in this universe. Or, as Anne so beautifully says, grace bats last.
12: Let's focus for a minute on what we do know. And one thing I love is what Mr. Rogers' mother always said to him after a tragedy when he would ask where God was in the catastrophe, and she would say, look to the helpers. And if you would look to the helpers, the people pouring in after the tsunami or the school shooting or the violent attack on the protesters— you would see such courage and sacrifice. I'm older than both of you, but in the 50s, people use the word sacrifice without shame. Mm -hmm. You know, that you sacrifice your own sense of comfort and safety and whatnot for the greater good. You also in the 50s could use the phrase the greater good without Mm -hmm. uh, shame. And so you look to the helpers, you look to what you know is true, that there is one who has all power and it doesn't get voted into office or removed, fingers crossed. And that we're made of God, we're made of the same stuff of God, we're made of Holy Spirit energy, where Einstein is right, there's only this one thing, that it can't be destroyed, I think of it as this kind of love energy, or this divine intelligence, and I see it all over, I see it in the face of every sober person I come upon, because they're amazed that they got out of that swamp of mental illness, you know, of, of self-loathing and grandiosity and physical illness and destruction.
7: Here's what happens. The darkness is just before the dawn. You and I remember those mornings, those cold mornings out in New Mexico, where it wasn't as cold as it ever was until just before the crack yes. of Yes,
0: yes. Oh, my God. Well, then I think I'll end on this one statement that you made at the end of your interview back, gosh, when did we do this? 1997. You said the consciousness of this planet is going to be so accelerated that people are going to be clear on what they will and won't accept from the destruction of our mother. It's similar to a child or a teen feeling that he can abuse his mom, but when he gets to be 28 or 30, he may think, "Eh, well, mom wasn't right on, but she wasn't that bad either." As each of us becomes older and wiser, the movement of consciousness becomes older and wiser. All people will eventually know what it feels like to be at the tip of the arrow leading charmed lives. So you're saying you got hope, right? We just have to hang on?
7: Yes, I'm saying that what's happening now is literally the death throes of patriotism, the death throes of the patriarchy and it's the darkness before the dawn and it is the last gasp you know those death throes when the
10: yeah, when I saw my mom the body
7: do it. Was, yes and the body just reaches out for one last gasp yeah and that's what has happened here and what we have to recognize is that it's not about confronting that one last gasp What it is about is connecting with like hearts and like minds.
0: Like hearts and like minds. I like it. That's what I strive for here with every episode. Thank you to my amazing big-hearted guests and guest hosts. I'm still starstruck by every one of you. I feel so blessed, too, to have launched this podcast with my beloved Danielle, And that you all have continued to show up each month, making this birthday extra special. Huge hugs to those of you who take the time to leave five stars or loving comments on iTunes. That's a big deal. Your comments help other listeners find us and keep it all going. As for that birthday gift I mentioned at the top of the show, I've bundled together three of my favorite resources and turned it into a free writer's gift pack over at bookmama.com. First, you'll find a new hour-long conversation with my best-selling author friend and Beautiful Writers Group co-host, Samantha Bennett. She's the author of the books Get It Done and Start Right Where You Are. Sam and I break down many of the easiest and fastest ways to build a powerful writerly platform. Second, there's an extensive book proposal template there to take you from idea to done and sold. And third, an interview on how to rewrite and weave a new personal story. All of this to make your path easier and more fun. So meet me over at bookmama.com to get your birthday gift, no matter what day you happen to land here. That's all for now. Until next time, right on.